Just last year, there was over 350 million families across mm. the world that can't find an affordable home. Mm. About 100 million of it is here in Sub-Saharan Africa. So there are all of these mega challenges as Cubic that we're trying to actually solve. And yet it would be overwhelming if we tried to do it by ourselves. So one of the things that we've always thought about is it's not a matter of how as a company we try to solve everything alone. It's about what is the most critical piece of the puzzle that we can contribute to and put a dent in and actually rally others to be a part of as well. So as a business model, we did not think of ourselves as a company that will try to do it all. We actually thought about ourselves as a business that will try to do one thing very well, but also be a catalyst to bring others along with it. Salam and hello everyone and happy, happy new year. It's great to be back with you here in January. We are enjoying the summer months in Nairobi, but wherever we are, we hope that 2024 has been kind to you so far. Before we get into today's episode, I want to ask you for a favor. Please make sure that you are liked, following, or subscribing the show. There were some changes to iTunes algorithm over the holidays, so go back, make sure, if, especially if you follow us on iTunes, that you are still following us. Some of the um, shows have been paused, so take a look at your following. And if you're not following or subscribed yet, please do. It really, really helps the show. Well, in this new year, we are so excited to bring you stories that continue to build on our values of joy and justice. For many of you, you know my story, that I am Ethiopian, born in Addis Ababa, immigrated to the United States. And then uh, almost 17, 18 years ago, my family moved back to Ethiopia and then have been in Nairobi for many years. What took us to Ethiopia, though, was the work and study of my parents. My mom studied nutrition and my dad was an engineering student at the time that the Derek was closing many of the universities in Addis Ababa. They had the very good fortune to have an opportunity to continue their schooling in the United States. And my dad went on to eventually get a PhD in chemical engineering. Now, as a kid, I didn't really understand what that meant or what he did. I just knew it was in the sciences. And as any good immigrant child, I knew I was expected to also become an engineer or doctor or in the worst case scenario, a lawyer when I grew up. My dad spent many, many years in the chemical engineering and the plastics and polymer world. He has over a dozen patents and has really committed to his life into thinking about how plastics can be used to best serve families and homes and businesses and, and governments at scale at times. Well, he's now retired back in Addis Ababa teaching chemical engineering to doctoral students. And as I've talked to him in recent years, I've really been moved by his commitment to try and give something back to the country that he loves, the country that we call home. In engineering, there are so many different ways we can go. And in the last few years, it's been clear that one of the best uses of engineering is thinking about and tackling the climate environmental and development challenges that the continent is facing. While he's done that through his academic work, there's a world of tech and environmental entrepreneurs that are completely thrilling us and inspiring us with their dedication both to our home countries as well as to their fields of discipline. And today's guest is really a brilliant example of what it means like to give your life and service to others through the skills that you have in the sciences. Kudus Asfau, together with Pendamare, is the co-founder of Cubix. Cubix is a company that is transforming hard-to-recycle plastic waste into low-carbon, cost-effective buildings in emerging markets. Okay, what does that mean? That means a lot of things, and we're really glad that Kudus is here to help us understand what it means to take plastic waste 
and turn it into something durable and dignified for communities across the world. At Cubix, they believe in a future where plastic waste can be eliminated and gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions avoided by making durable and affordable building materials. Their model, their work is so outstanding that in 2022, Cubic won the African Startup of the Year and the Best ESG Tech Company of the Year by the Global Startup Awards. That award is basically like the Grammys of the tech and entrepreneurial space and was truly, the, that's how I heard about Caduceus' work was through this award and just how outstanding it was and how deeply committed it was to bettering the lives of people, not only in Ethiopia, but across the world. Caduceus' work did not start at Cubix. He has been in this field for some time. He worked at UNICEF, he's worked at the World Bank, and at UNICEF in particular, he was the first lead of their global, or the first global project manager for their innovation hub, working on ways to improve children's lives across three different continents. Since then, he has continued to build in this um, environmental tech world, and his narrative is one of resilience, creativity, and purpose-driven leadership. It is my great joy and privilege to welcome Kedus Asfaw to Salam and Hello. Kedus, karibu. Asante, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Such a thrill to have you here. I have to admit that talking to science people is not always my forte, <laughs> even though I grew up with an engineer dad. But reading about your work, it is so clear that it has a practical everyday application to our lives. So as we start off, tell us a little bit about the early inspirations that lead you to founding the, the company Cubix. So I grew up in Ethiopia. I grew up in Addis Ababa. I spent my entire childhood there before heading off for college in the US. When I think about my time growing up, it was a very happy, uh, very fun uh, mm -hmm. childhood. Uh, my upbringing was filled with people, a community that actually nurtured and took care of me. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time during uh, the startup awards, which I did not think we were gonna win, and did not prepare a speech for, the only thing that could actually come into my mind was this phrase of it, it takes a village. Mm. And the reason why that came was thinking about the women who actually raised me. When I was only seven months old, my, my mom, uh, her entire career was uh, in the airlines industry. She was a flight attendant for Ethiopian Airlines. But unfortunately, when I was seven months old, she had a terrible accident uh, mm -hmm. at work and, and she was away for about a year and a half on rehab. And when I think about that moment, there were so many women who actually took care of me. Uh, you know, my neighbor, she was a pediatrician. Uh, she made sure that I was eating well. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had Mama Munira, who's a, a Yemeni lady right across the street from us. She made sure that I was home uh, all the time, that I was safe. And these women were the ones who actually made sure that I became the person that I am today. And I am one of the very few fortunate people to have had the community, the um, resources around my family to have a great education, great health care. But if I also think about how the majority of Ethiopians lived, it was through that community, right? Mm. And I've always became a little bit challenged in understanding why that community has been eroding in a very fast growing city. And this is the narrative in any city that you go to. The bigger you become, the more densely populated you become, the sense of community disappears. But I don't see that in Ethiopia. I don't see that in Addis Ababa. Uh, after coming back uh, home, 
over a decade later, I still saw that. I go back to my neighborhood and it is my mom, Munira, who's still asking me as a 30-year-old per, you know, guy, have you eaten? <laughs> right? and, and, and I've really valued that. And that's something that I've really tried to reflect in anything that I do, I, either as a father, but also as someone who's built this company from scratch as well. So that idea of community is not, I think, the story, maybe, I don't know, I'm not a tech entrepreneur, but it's not the story we always hear at the front of a business vision statement or you know, a five-year plan. So this idea of community, how does that then inform the way that you wanna continue to build communities? How does Cubix contribute to this idea that it takes a village? So when we think about the problem that we are trying to solve, it's mega problems and there's not only one, right? We're trying to eradicate plastic waste. Plastic waste continues to accelerate in growth every year. There's over 370 million tons that mm. go unrecycled just last year. Wow. Right. Most of it comes from the U.S. If you think about climate change, about 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from how we build and how we live. We're not doing much about that. And then when you think about affordability of living, which is something that's very nascent yet very alarming, we are still having a massive gap in families that don't have a place to actually call home that is a decent way of living, meaning a place that is structurally sound, clean, et cetera. And just last year, there was over 350 million families across mm. the world that can't find an affordable home. Mm. About 100 million of it is here in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, there are all of these mega challenges as cubic that we're trying to actually solve. And yet it would be overwhelming if we tried to do it by ourselves. So one of the things that we've always thought about is it's not a matter of how as a company we try to solve everything alone. It's about what is the most critical piece of the puzzle that we can contribute to and put a dent in and actually rally others to be a part of as well. See? So as a business model, we did not think of ourselves as a company that will try to do it all. We actually thought about ourselves as a business that will try to do one thing very well, but also be a catalyst to bring others along with it. I love that. I think that really echoes the principles of many of our forefathers, like Wangari Mathai, who says, you know, this is my one thing. This is my one thing that I can do. And hers was planting trees. Yours is turning this plastic into reusable materials that can provide dignified housing. And if I think about that connecting to how you started the conversation around communities, it's you know, creating homes for the community to sustain and to, to live in, to continue in. When we talk about people, we talk about communities, we talk about urban centers, all of this is underneath the umbrella of climate, climate work. And you have been able to take Cubix's message and work to some of the most critical climate conversations that the world is having. When you tell the story of climate and co the continent and Cubix, those, that kind of triangulation, What's the story that you're really putting out there that we need to focus on the most? I think as somebody who's just taking in information, taking in stories, there is so much noise. There are so many messages. I think about policy work and I think, you know, Africa's countries have really committed to very aggressive emissions numbers. Um, they are, and, and despite not contributing as much to the world's, yeah. you know, greenhouse emissions and whatnot. So when you think about that triangulation, you know, communities, cubics, climate, what do we need to pay attention to the most? You know, what rises yeah. to the top for you? 
Climate change as a word is probably the most overwhelming word. <laughs> and it's probably the most paralyzing wor word as well, because you don't know where to start or what to do. Um, a book that really changed the way that I think about it is called Project Drawdown. Okay. Project Drawdown quantified the problems by sector, by products, by all these different things and said, here's how greenhouse gas emissions could actually broken down. Mm. And then also listed possible solutions, like quantitatively, of what we can do and ranked it. Before reading Project Drawdown, I would have probably thought transport, like fuel consumption, is the biggest thing that we can do. But then I saw road and infrastructure, and I'm like, what the heck is that? Hmm. Like, how is that possible? And that's really where the idea of inputs that make and build cities and countries are the biggest culprits hmm. came to mind. The other one on the top five was educating women. I like that. I like that. Okay. Quantifiable. <laughs> yeah. right? It didn't come from the heart. It came yeah. from data. Right. I think the moment that we're able to break down and understand what we can really do to curb climate change, we can then take action around it. And for Cubic, that's how we actually started, right? We knew that we were tackling one of the biggest culprits. And if we just paid absolute focus and attention to how we can do that at scale, we can actually make a difference, right? And then you start thinking about, well, when we start doing that, there's many other things we're going to touch on, right? Plastics was one, right? Plastics are made from oil. I don't know if you knew that. It's made from petrol. I should know that as right? the daughter of Dr. <laughs> Salomon Bukana, but yeah. I didn't. <laughs> right? It's made out of petrol, sure. right? So you have this extractives industry that you're also starting to upcycle and make more sustainable. You start thinking about communities and how urban design can actually affect mm the use of energy consumption. You have women in education and how just by having a sourcing plan around women entrepreneurs can actually dramatically affect that as well. But we still stayed focused as saying we are one, one piece of a very complex puzzle. So if we knew what that piece is and hope that piece is big enough to make a big dent, how do we also bring others that interconnect with us along with us? So when it comes to climate change, I think what's really helped us is thinking about it that way. On one side, we decided we're not a recycling company, so we actually work with those that mobilize waste collectors. We work with cities that have a big stake in how we can actually get this. And on the other side, we work with real estate developers. So one of the interesting things is our business models, we sell walls, right? Yeah, it's super yeah, simple. Yeah. But the moment you start engaging them, they start asking you about, well, how can we design things so that we have more high-density communities? How do we start thinking about making your product in a way that can also save on energy, right? So now they're helping us think about other potential ways that our product can affect the built environment in a more sustainable and positive way. Which makes sense. Which if you're making sense. a product for a community, they've got to inform what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that's definitely helped us. When we went to COP28, one of the most encouraging things that I saw is an entire day dedicated to the built environment. The There's built a, environment meaning exactly what you're doing? Yeah. What, is that, what does that mean in a layperson's yeah. language? The built environment 
is everything that's required to make your home okay. and for you to live in it, right? So that includes how that house is built, how you use land to make sure it's built well, how that home is not consuming too much energy, mm. how you can live off grid if possible. It's all of that stuff that contributes to over 42% of the greenhouse gas emissions today. Oh my goodness, wow. Right, more than cars. I don't think that is something, I'm so glad you're saying this is something we need to think about at the top because not everyone has a car in in, in the continent we love. And so, but everyone's living in something for the most part and that's 42%, wow. Yeah, so coming, rooting that back to Africa, um, there's definitely a discourse an understandable discourse of why are African countries bearing the burden of curbing greenhouse gas emissions that they're not significantly contributing to. Right. The way that I would actually think about it is we have an opportunity to do things differently, right? We shouldn't see it as a burden, but we should see it as an outlet for innovation that we can then export to others, right? Cubic is a very small company doing a very small thing right now. But the fact that we might be able to export a technology that's transforming plastic waste, Mm. petrol-based chemical, right, into a more sustainable housing material in Ethiopia, in Kenya, becomes an outlet for the Ethiopian, the Kenyan, the African economy to export this to others that need it as well. 100%. So if we don't see it as a burden, I think we also have that mindset shift of how we invest, of how we think about things differently so that we don't fall into that same trap that others do. So let's talk about kind of the nitty gritty of how this model works. You mentioned some really alarming statistics about the need for sustainable housing for so much of the world's population. Um, Some of the data that I picked up from some of from Cubix's website talks about 70 million tons of plastic found in landfills and streets in the continent. By 2030, 300 million families needing a dignified place to live in. The carbon footprint in African countries has risen by 123% since the 1990s. These are alarming statistics, mega statistics to the mega problems that you mentioned. What are some early indications that this Cubics model is gonna work? It's really important that we think about the product and what it's actually doing. So if you take a brick, which is one piece of, of the Lego that we make. I like Legos, that I can understand. <laughs> right. So, so we make walls, that's our product right now. And this product is made out of uh, interlocking pieces of building materials that real estate developers need. Hmm. And obviously the one thing that's relatable to everyone is a brick. So if you take that one brick, it consumes about two to three kilos of plastic waste. Okay, one brick is two to three kilos of plastic waste. So is a brick like this size, just to give us an idea? Yeah, so think of it as 10 by 50 centimeters, Okay. okay. right? Uh, it looks like a piece of Lego, Yeah. very strong, uh, very beautiful and boring, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it takes two to three kilos of plastic, right? Okay. If you think about most plastics, they're very lightweight. So the ability for it to consume all of this trash on its own is massive. On top of that, it's about 40% cheaper than what you can buy on the market, which is usually made out of cement. Okay. Right. 
Cement, if it was a country, would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. Wow. Right? Just the production of that material. Just the production, the transportation, yeah. the use of it is very bad and polluting. Mm-hmm. We're able to reduce that pollution by over five times. Wow. Right? So we already know that we have an incredible product that's able to do a lot when it comes to affordability, mm-hmm. it, it, able to take out trash that many people are not able to recycle, mm-hmm. but also making sure that it's contributing to the fight against climate change. So a lot of what we start to focus on is, well, great, we've made this awesome product. Mm-hmm. Now, do we need to become recyclers and real estate developers and do all this stuff? And the answer was no, right? We need to be a company that really focuses on making this brick mm-hmm. cheaper, a lot more sustainable, and find ways of even taking in more types of trash in the future, right? Something beside the plastics. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there's many types of plastics, which we can talk about later. Yeah. I, this is where I needed my dad to co-host this episode with me <laughs> so I can get into the yeah. different, different plastics that inform this model. You, you know, you in your writing, this idea of the plastics and just that, I mean, we can't drive really anywhere in Addis Ababa or Nairobi and not see some places. I think both of our cities are doing better about collecting it and maintaining some cleanliness, but it has to go somewhere. It lives somewhere. Even if it's off the streets, it's going somewhere. So our use and consumption of plastics is still beyond you know, what is good for our communities. And in 2018, there was a really tragic avalanche in the Addis Ababa um, where people who were in the collecting trash, picking trash, over 100 people were killed in an avalanche of trash in one place. Tell me what that tragedy told you about the story that we're writing for our big urban cities that continue to grow on the continent. Municipalities are doing their best with very limited resources. And the thing that fascinates me about city managers taking Addis Ababa as one is with the limited resources that they have, they're having to deal with a accelerating population in their in their jurisdiction yeah. that ultimately have to throw stuff out, have to find places to live, and obviously need places to work. So it's a very tasking challenge. Now, when you think about waste, they are doing their best in making sure it doesn't end up near your house because the worst thing that can happen is you have contaminants near your place that can make you sick, Mm -hmm. right? Think of a clogged sewer or think of stagnant water that can later on breed malaria-borne diseases, right? Or mosquito-borne diseases. So they're doing their best. And the best way that they can do that is putting it in one managed area. And that's what we call a landfill. But landfills, like everything else, have an expiration date. There's only a certain capacity that you can take it to. Now, in the case of Addis Ababa, there's one major landfill. It's called Koshe. Koshe is also slang for dirty, mm. right? But for me, I've realized that Koshe is actually a slang word for home. Mm. You have over 2,000 people that subsist on collecting or picking waste and trying to add value to it, right? We call them waste pickers, but I would rather call them entrepreneurs. They're actually finding opportunities of how somebody else's trash has become valuable. Usually that's been around scrap, water bottles, that type of stuff. But if you kind of zoom out from Goshe, it's not only these people are working in Goshe, they're also living there because they do not make enough to afford living anywhere else. And 
Kosha has been around since the 60s. It's over a decade when it should have been decommissioned. But unfortunately, when it comes to finding land to have another place, <laughs> when you think about resources to do this, it's limiting. And it's not a unique problem to Addis Ababa. It's where, what we see all over the world, including the U.S. So Kosha, um, unfortunately, was at overcapacity and it had an avalanche. Literally think of a snow avalanche, but that snow is trash and it killed people. And for me, what that said is several things. The first is, how come I did not know this existed as someone who is contributing to that pile? The second is just looking at what that trash consisted of. And of course, most of it was kind of organic material, mm -hmm. but you just see so much plastic there. And you realize, wow, all that nice little use and throw Coca-Cola bottles that we have that we always wish for, sure. that's where it's ending up. And then seeing footages of individuals who were seeing a home destroyed also makes you realize that people find dignity in having a choice of how they live and work. And it's not about displacing them away from a landfill, but giving them an opportunity to actually make something better of this place that they call home. So that definitely put a huge dent in what I was thinking about in life then. Uh, back then, I was working on software, right? Uh, I actually was at a, a drones symposium in Vienna when a lot of this happened. And it was also a time when my mentor, uh, who was then in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, gave me a call and said, why don't we do something about this plastic waste? And it really put a pivotal turn in my life. There's so much about what you said that I think is so powerful, um, this concept of home and dignity in particular. You had a chance to visit Koshe. I mean, you're from Addis Ababa. You know, it's not like a special uh, thing per se, but when you went to Koshe, you met some people that left an imprint on your mind. In reading some of your reflection on that, I was really moved by the story of a young girl called Marti. Could you tell us her story? Yeah. Um, Mar Marti's n no older than 15. Right. Um, she speaks very little Amharic. Uh, she comes from the southern part of Ethiopia. She's a migrant worker. And the first time I went to Koshe and, and the first time I also met Marti, you know, the, the first thing you see when you kind of zoom out and you see hundreds or thousands of people just scavenging is people that you think are desperate, people who are like trying to find a way out. And the more you zoom in and start talking to them, you realize they're not desperate. They're actually trying to find a way of making it work within their current situation. And Marty was a great example of this. So in, in this landfill and in many landfills, there's a kind of a pyramid scheme, uh, which is very stark. You have middlemen, very few of them, who kind of are the interlocutors between companies like Cubic who are trying to buy trash and those who are picking it. And they make incredible margins, right? They name prices and, you know, that's that. And then you have hundreds of these waste pickers who are selling to them, who happen to be mostly women. Usually about 80 to 90% of them are women. And they make nothing, right? And the moment that I started kind of assessing that market price, you could see that, you know, this guy's trying to sell me, uh, you know, a kilo for 20 bir. And then I asked this girl, 
how much she's making. She said one to two bar. Per kilo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, her name is Marti and it's very difficult trying to find ways of speaking to them, but I, I found some time. And, you know, I just asked her, you know, what, what do you want? Mm. She said, I want to make more. And I want to actually, and, and, and her, her concern was less around how much more money she can make in life, but how she can actually find ways of picking more. Like she was actually thinking like an entrepreneur. Right? She said, you know, I'm actually thinking of making a little bit more money so that I can have my own kind of crew and then kind of grow that business out. Mm. If you see Marty and put her on mute, you would find this stereotypical narrative of this poor African girl. The moment you put that volume on, you realize you have this quintessential African hustler who's actually going to make it in the world. Mm. And all she's looking for is a chance and an opportunity. And I think that really changed the way that I thought about sourcing. Um, Cubic was very early days. We're still thinking about figuring out many things, and one of them was around the supply chain. And this was the moment we said, we're going to find ways of finding many Martis right, and making them entrepreneurs. And they'll figure it out. All we need to do is give them direct access to us and give them that market. And that's what we've seen in the past two years. We've seen single moms come in because we've advertised, you know, that will buy trash, you know, she'll bring in five kilos. And recently I, I heard of a mom who brought in 400 kilos in one day. Wow. Right. Wow. And it just talks a lot about people's resilience, people's mindset that they're not looking for handouts. They're just looking for opportunities and a choice of living. And that's why we decided to build our mission around dignity. I love I just want to just like I'm struggling not to say, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm, great. I love it because everything you say just yeah is just the heart of what we need and why I think the best solutions for our continent are going to be from the ground up, really not from out in, but in up, you know, and this idea of empowering people already there who are entrepreneurs. I love how you said, you know, if you take the volume up, that's what, that's the story you're going to hear. And it speaks to the gender piece. It speaks to the youth piece, which is every part of every UN convention. It's always youth and women, gender, gender. But to see it happening just in a very organic way is really inspiring. When you think about the next 10 years for Cubics, when you think about the next 10 years for the continent, cities like Addis Ababa, cities like Nairobi, what do you want to see the story become in, in 10 years? You know, what is the goal that you're chasing? I strongly believe that Africa is going to become the launching pad for many of the innovations needed to solve the world's problems, including climate change. And it's not just a feeling, it's just facts, right? When you think about how many countries or people have built these billion, trillion dollar companies or ideas and innovations, it's come from this space of trying to solve a problem. And nowhere in the world are these problems much starker and in your face like the continent. Mm. And on the flip side, you have individuals that are not just looking at this problem and looking at it from a place of desperation. They're trying to figure it out, right? And it takes you walking out in the street and just meeting any kid out there and seeing what they're doing. And they're always figuring something out. And I really love that. I think the biggest gap uh, for the continent, which I think is changing, is obviously access to capital. Right. 
capital at the end of the day is the fuel to the engine that you that you're trying to drive the car towards and you know we have the engine we we just need a bit more fuel okay. right but then the second piece is kind of the road and the direction um, a lot of the entrepreneurs that i've met still need exposure towards how to think about this thing that could be a trillion dollar idea but are still thinking about it as a thousand dollar, one million dollar small scale business. Um, everything is there in us and it just requires a bit more exposure and capital. So what I would love to see and what I firmly believe will happen is the continent really being seen as that launching pad for these type of giga scale mm-hmm. innovation for the world. So last year, a couple of years ago, maybe it was, yeah, last year, you were able to secure some couple million dollars in seed funding. What does seed funding like that mean for a company like Cubix? What does that in the short term allow you to do to reach some of those 10-year markers of, of giga solutions? It's validation around various things, right? So the fundraising journey is tough, right? It's tough for everyone. It's, it was definitely tough for us. And what I quickly realized was fundraising for us meant fighting a lot of uphill battles, right? If I was a software company in Silicon Valley with a nice PowerPoint, I could have probably raised something within the first month. That was the reality in 2021. But what I realized is I have this African company operating in probably one of the hardest to operate markets in the world in hardware. So I'm asking all this money for something that's not going to have, you know, a thousand X returns immediately, right? And one of the things that we had to start thinking about is, is this really about trying to prove to investors that Cubic will work? Mm-hmm. Or is this really about trying to prove to investors that Africa is the place where the likes of Cubic will work, mm-hmm. right? So we actually started marketing a lot more about Ethiopia in our case, since this is where our operations was starting talking a lot about the opportunities in Africa, talking about what Africans are achieving. And I think the moment that the snowball effect of, you know, awards, uh, key investments started to come in, what that validated to us wasn't that Cubic is great. It's that people are starting to understand the story of African innovation and the power that Africa has to solve very big problems that others haven't been able to solve yet. I, we couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that's so much of what we're trying to do here is put out those stories to say, so actually our solutions are not just even for the continent. They are global in reach, global in impact. And it's clear that Cubix's model is going to is ca- capable to do that. What I loved in one of your um, promotional or marketing kind of, well, it wasn't marketing. I think it was for COP28 that just happened last um, month in December. You talked about the work that you're doing. You took your son to see some of your work and you showed him, I think, a school. And your son had an idea for you. And I loved, I I want you to tell the story and put it in on your words, but it spoke to me about this long-term impact that can happen as we continue to innovate here on the ground and keep our ideas at home. So please tell us a little bit of that conversation, what that was like, because I think it speaks to what's ahead for the continent and how bright the future can be. Yeah. One of my biggest role models is my dad, right? Um, He's- Me too. Yeah. (laughs) And, and people sometimes underestimate the value role models have mm-hmm. in creating resilient communities, creating a country, a nation, right? 
creating uh, a strong identity amongst a group of people, right? The moment a child sees someone who looks like them doing something that they want, they believe they can do it too, maybe can even do it better. And obviously that was an inspiration that I've drawn from my dad and what he's done, trying to do something even more than him. Well, now I have to ask you about your dad too. I'm I'm, I'm happy to tell you a lot about him. Uh, But I, I definitely see that in my kids as well. I'm, I'm a father of three. In my, in, my, in my middle child, Lucas, is just phenomenal, mm-hmm. right? This really confident kid who believes he can move mountains. And we built our first daycare, our first building in Ethiopia that, that was made out of plastic waste. And one of the things that we decided to do as a team is instead of making this kind of stiff inaugural thing, so we're going to actually bring our kids Right. They're the ones who are going to inaugurate it for us. And it was under this philosophy that at the end of the day, what we are building here are roots for others to also follow on and build on what we've started. And one of the things that he said to me was, you know, he he looked at this, you know, single story kind of cute, you know, daycare and said, he's like, why is it only he's like, why is it only one floor? I said, well, you know, that's kind of what we can do right now. That's our limitation. He said, okay. He's like, well, I'll build a skyscraper when I, when I take over cubic one day. (laughs) Right. And, and you, I, I believe that kids can be molded in any way that you would want them to. And I think, you know, through our work, through us as parents, uh, parents of countries that have been historically misrepresented, um, we have that opportunity of really changing that narrative of them being custodians of building even a bigger, brighter future for the country and the world. Thank you for that. It says You've said so much in that statement of just that story with your son. I, a couple of months ago, interviewed some Sudanese um, people, Sudanese people in the diaspora, uh, kind of reflecting on what's happening in Sudan right now. And the world kind of has a narrative, as you've rightly said, about the continent, around different places. And my question to them was, tell me about your Sudan. Tell me about the Sudan you know that is maybe not in the headlines every day. So in just hearing a little bit about your dad being your role model and your son who's going to take this to the next level, you know, tell me about your Ethiopia. Tell me about the stories of your dad and others. You've, you've mentioned the amazing women who helped raise you. That is the story of Ethiopia that maybe doesn't get to the headlines. Ethiopia is a country and a group of people that have prehistoric roots, right? And they have a very complex relationship with one another, <laughs> right? To put it lightly, yeah. right? We've, uh, we've torn each other apart and rebuilt ourselves over millennia. And that has created this very rich and vibrant culture and identity amongst us around who we are as a group of people. And one of the things that I actually like is you can never box us in, yeah, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think we sometimes as a group of people have this frustration that sometimes we feel fragmented. But I, I really feel that it's that you just can't mm. box us in, mm. right? We, we have a social contract amongst each other of who we are. And we're very rich amongst that. Now, when I think about my dad, um, he was a rebellious kid, uh, you know, came from a fairly affluent family, but could just never be boxed in, right? Mm. And uh, my grandpa, my grandpa, his dad, was kind of frustrated with him and kind of sends him to boarding school, rebellious in boarding school. He comes back and at the end, he just said, 
you're going to military school. And my dad says, that's when I became a man, right? Mm -hmm. And he brought that from a place of understanding what it means to be holding value as a human being. And it's starting with yourself and how you contribute from yourself outwards. Uh, he was one of the youngest uh, kind of cadets who then went to fight in the Congo War mm. uh, as you know an early 20-year-old lieutenant. Um, he got to see the world through that. And upon coming back, was able to go to training in Georgia in the U.S., <laughs> and then saw what the American dream could also look like and came back and asked to be uh, honorably discharged and go get an education. While many were chasing a dream of prestige, he was chasing a dream of knowledge and curiosity. And he was very lucky to have someone who actually saw that in him and sent him off. And he grew up uh, you know, as in, in, in a new form, uh, in the south of the U.S. Uh, with a prominent white family as his host family that he still calls mom and dad <laughs> um, in the late 60s. Wow. And he experienced everything that you can imagine a black man in the south would. He was in a fraternity. Oh <laughs> he my was goodness. a beta. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, he participated in the Black Panther movement. He... He marched with uh, very prominent civil rights activists, all while still coming back home to a white family. And he really exemplified to me of what the human identity is. He did not see it as black and white, but he saw it as people being able to work on a social contract together. And meanwhile, when all of this was happening, um, he pursued all the way to becoming a sociology professor. Uh, and he turns on the news and sees that his friends, his cadets, fellow cadets, have now overthrown a government and a emperor that he loves. And it created the struggle for him of what it means to know these individuals and yet see them do something that was against his belief or what he believed the country should be going towards. But Nevertheless, uh, a few years on, uh, these same friends call him and say, we need you to come and help us rebuild a country. And he committed to that. And he actually came back. And even though it was a regime that he did not stand for ideologically, he believed about this commitment around public service to a group of people that he, rep that he feels he represents. And throughout all of that, again, another shift came and he lost it all. And he decided to become a farmer of all things. And while I was growing up, uh, I spent a lot of time in a dairy farm. That's how he paid for my education with my mom and gave me the best education because he believed the same way that he had an outlet for knowledge and curiosity the best investment he could make for his kids was through education. And ever since then, he sold his farm, he's written books, he's telling his life. But um, I, I sometimes feel I'm kind of living that life through him as well, right? I, I used to be a software engineer, went into international development and then became an entrepreneur. 
And he's always said to me something that's always stuck, which is there's no such thing as a good life or a bad life. There's life. You're going to live it and then you're going to die. So make the best of it, but don't hurt anyone along the way. And that's just a life philosophy that I try to convey to people close to me and obviously live it through the company that we've built. Oh, that's really what a story. We thank you for sharing that. When you look at, you know, kind of the city you live in now, Nairobi, and your home, Addis Ababa, you know, what, what, are, what can we learn from each other across these borders? You know, I think I've, oftentimes, I don't know if you've heard this here in Nairobi, I hear people say when they go to Addis Ababa, oh, Addis Ababa is like Nairobi 15 years ago. They'll say things like that. And we see both cities growing, you know, uh, infrastructure, highways, skyscrapers. I mean, you cannot go anywhere in Nairobi or Addis Ababa and not see a crane somewhere. And you can also see these informal settlements, you know, right alongside that development. So when you look at Nairobi and you look at Addis Ababa, two really important cities for the world as well as the continent, what can we learn from each other? You know, that these cities maybe are both doing well, that we can really learn and observe. I think sometimes we forget that cities or countries are being governed by human beings, right? <laughs> and, and, and it's, if you just even think about your day, uh, if you think about your most overwhelming days, there's so little that you can do during that time, right? And one of the things that I've noticed is people don't really have time to explore the world or do everything that is possible for them. I definitely see that within municipalities. And one of the things that I've encouraged is, you know, why don't you guys come to Nairobi and see how they're doing things or telling people to go to Addis Ababa and see things. But at the end of the day, you know, they have to plan a trip. They have to, you know, it, it becomes overwhelming because just the amount of work on their desk here sure. is a lot. Now, having said that, one of the things that I definitely see is an appreciation for exchange amongst countries like Kenya and Ethiopia, but also the power of collective work, especially around shared infrastructure, right? There's a lot of stories that have come out in the past few years around how you know, Ethiopia and, and Kenya have agreements around sharing electricity or around, you know, the African Free Trade Agreement and ACT so that right. we can work together. I think that type of collective sharing of infrastructure is going to really catapult us. And that's something that has always been um, a void because of just the way that our countries have been formed from colonial past that mm. we've had mm. and we're definitely breaking it the second thing that i'm really fascinated about is the shared mentality that we all have that unless we work together we're going to be left behind right Absolutely. i definitely love the uh kind of the rebelliousness that many african leaders have these days around not trying to conform to the norms that others have structured for us Right. Trying to have those same social contracts amongst ourselves is super important. And when we think about climate change, when we think about how we build and reimagine what cities and life in cities look like, it won't happen by the experience that Stockholm and Jakarta have. Right. It's by sharing on how Nairobi and Addis Ababa or Kisumu and Deredoa are mm -hmm. able to build. And I definitely see these human beings coming together and collectively sharing that in the future as well. You know, I, thank you for that. I, I'm glad you also picked up other cities. You're right. So much emphasis on Nairobi and Addis Ababa. And both these countries are booming 
you know, other markets. I have to ask you, um, I've heard people ask you about your, your advice for other entrepreneurs, but just hearing you speak about this triangulation of challenges, rooting it back on the continent, it's clear to me that you also must have some really consistent habits in your life that allow for this kind of analysis, thoughtfulness, and kind of specificity in your work. Tell me, tell me a little bit, instead of advice for entrepreneurs who want to do similar work, tell me about some of the habits that you have in your day-to-day life that really allow for this kind of imagination, but also impact. I think it's always important not to fear failure. And I know many entrepreneurs say that, but I can kind of break down what that <laughs> means, right? Uh, it's again it's my dad who said you know what defines you is not you know how you fall it's how you pick yourself up Mm. right failure is actually a learning process it's not an end point and I think the moment that you have passion or interest to do something trying it is okay like try it yeah right and through that process you learn something new it might not have been the way that you imagined it will go but it gets you somewhere that sure. you, you desire. So I definitely try to have that type of mentality to anything, especially in building a company where the obstacles are dime a dozen every single day, yeah. right? And the moment that you're not afraid of trying something that might not work really is a game changer. The second thing is most things that you will work on that matter are going to be very difficult because if they weren't, someone else has already solved it, right? True. <laughs> and one of the things that actually gives me energy is the harder, more complex the challenge is, the realization that you have an opportunity to be, to be the first person to actually figure it out. Mm. So I really try to use that type of mentality as well. And then the final pieces, actually second to last pieces, breaking it down to small chunks, yeah. right? Everything will always be overwhelming if you see it as a big picture thing only, right? But if you kind of work your way backwards on every little thing you have to do and then understand what that first step looks like, that really is the breakthrough. The breakthrough is the first step, right? Everything else kind of comes along with it. But the final piece is never think of solving anything alone. It's actually kind of silly. I, I am not a chemical engineer, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, I, I have very little understanding around the real estate industry. But one thing I definitely knew is if I understood what problems needed to be solved incrementally, then it makes it easier to understand who I need to bring on that journey along with yeah. me. And, you know, Cubic is not a company that was built by Caduce or Penda. It was actually built by now 47 very smart individuals that are very hardworking and experts in their domain. And they've had the power of collectively working together on a common challenge. And I think entrepreneurs need to understand the lonely journey should only be that first step. But unless you bring others along with you, you will probably get so far that it won't really matter. So what's next for Cubics and those 47 people who you're building with? Ethiopia is definitely the focus this year. Um, We had an incredible year last year. Uh, Probably the four big highlights for me is, sure, fundraising was one and and the recognition that came along with it. Uh, Building our first daycare was another. Uh, Launching our factory was was a huge achievement. 
but then also being able to see the team that we've built mm. is just incredible. I think this year we need to prove to the world three things that I've told everyone uh, on the team that this is real. <laughs> right? I like that. Yeah. This is real. Like people need to see this out We're there. Out of the idea stage. This is happening. Yeah. Right. They need to see this yeah. in different places. They need to see that people want it and that this thing can actually grow. And I think if these are three data points that we can prove out this year, then 2025 and beyond will look very, very different for us. Uh, well, we will be watching. We will be cheering you on from outside lines and continuing to listen to your story. I'm really struck by, in addition to your ability to take an idea and actualize it, you're an incredible storyteller of being able to weave the story of this place and the people that matter to you and the problems that are out there and, and tell that in a way that really lands you know, well and powerfully. So thank you for all that you're contributing. Before we let you go, we always ask our guests two questions before we ask them because we let them leave because we love to see the through line between people, whether they're tech, climate entrepreneurs like yourself or if they're in completely different industries. So our first question, Kudus, is what is your favorite beverage? My guilty pleasure is Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, it, it it's the byproduct of an incredible childhood and yes. trying to get that tuber from my parents to buy one. <laughs> While I don't consume it as much anymore, if there is something that gives me just ultimate joy is being in the middle of nowhere yes. and finding that very cold Coca-Cola. In a glass bottle. In a glass it's, bottle. It's really, it must be in a glass bottle. It must bottle. be in a glass bottle. And so my first words were Coca-Cola. Isn't that so sad? <laughs> not Imma, not Abba. It was Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I share that, uh, that affection. And it tastes different on the continent, I think, right? Because they use sugar, not corn syrup. That's what I've heard. It, it tastes different in Ethiopia. It's, it tastes and, different in Ethiopia. And, and if there's one the place Kenyan I friends. have it, it's only in Ethiopia. <laughs> All right. Well, next time we're both in Addis, my treat to a cold Coca-Cola uh, sometime. And, you know, the last question, you know, our show is all about joy and justice. And the work of Cubics just brings me tremendous joy as somebody who's looking for how are we going to continue in this continent with all the mega problems to see the mega solutions you're creating. are It's really quite joyful at its root. So we would love to know what is bringing you joy today. Seeing a happy customer. Um, nothing beat, like there's no number you can show me on an Excel spreadsheet that has the power of giving me joy than talking to an individual that we've made a difference in their lives around. Mm. A lot of that has recently come from waste collectors. Um, there's just so many individuals out there that are just strong, resilient women who are not looking for handouts. And that is fuel to whatever we do. Yeah. And it's become the base and the core of the soul of Cubic today. What I definitely want to see is that same waste collector, that waste entrepreneur, now living in our home because she could afford it. Mm. And the one thing we don't talk enough about is our commitment to investing in women, not because... It's nice, but because there's enough data there to show that women are the best invest, like asset class to invest in, Yeah. right? If you invest in a mom, she's investing in her children, right? If you're investing in women, they're investing in a, you're investing in a community. 
And we really believe that if we can do that and walk the walk or walk the talk, <laughs> right? Um, we think we're going to make intangible difference that will never come mm. to figures. And I feel like I've lived through that, through the women that have raised me as well. That's, that's awesome. What a beautiful tribute and a legacy you're building. Thank you so much for being on Salam and Hello. Um, I have to tell you, it was very hard for me. I, I saw that you're a Duke grad and my daughter's at Carolina. And I just want to commend we myself you. for going through this whole interview <laughs> without mentioning it. I just want to say well done to myself. But no, just kidding. Such a joy to have you on Salam and Hello. I hope you will continue to come back and, you know, we can ask you in a year's time how it's going. But we wish you just continued success and, you know, may your impact go beyond your wildest dreams. Thank you so much for having me. It was such it was, a privilege. It was a pleasure. Thank Thanks. you so much. Good deuce. Listeners, let us know what you thought about this episode. I hope that you will take... The principles could do shared about, you know, failing fast and being looking for the problems that you can solve to heart. We would love to hear what you thought. So leave us a message, send us a DM. You can go old school and email us lily at salamandhello.com or producer at salamandhello.com. And we are really excited to be back in your feed in 2024. We're going to keep bringing you these stories of joy and justice. And we hope that you'll continue to be with us week to week. So until we meet again, peace. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. I don't stop the baby in the skies. Oh, God.